0: To episode twenty-seven of the podcast, history does you. Today, we're going to be covering Russian election interference in two thousand sixteen, and we had an interview with New York Times number one best-selling author Michael Isikoff, which I'm sure all of you will enjoy. I guess I was always hesitant to sort of cross this sort of Rubicon into the realm of politics, but you know, the more I read this story personally, the more I saw it through the lens of sort of counterintelligence slash foreign policy rather than politics, obviously it is politics, but I really was more fascinated with sort of the geopolitical side of things and how, you know, we've gotten to this point in US-Russia relations where it's gotten super sour, especially after the Cold War, when there was, you know, such optimism that this sort of global liberal hegemony that the US was trying to build would, you know, just thrive. And in many ways, I think there's been a revival of Russian power, really. and obviously understanding Putin, you have to understand that his whole goal is to revive Russia and emulate sort of the Soviet Union. If you know the Soviet Union, they had basically an empire that stretched from East Germany, what is a modern East Germany, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And they were able to influence events and all over the world. And obviously the fall of Soviet Union, I think Vladimir Putin, he called it, you know, the Most like, I think, I don't know what the word is, tragic or something, but he called it, regardless, the worst geopolitical event in really world history. So, if you, you know, to understand that worldview, you probably understand that he holds this sort of grudge. And I think it's been pretty well documented against the United States. I've always personally been, you know, outside of history, I've always been fascinated. I read plenty of spy novels, all of that. And this is sort of real life. So, I also kind of enjoy how. I would say really in the last sort of two decades, really, it seems like that, you know, investigative reporting has really led and there seems to be more accessibility to these sorts of stories and they're able to sort of be retold in these sort of story-like ways. And that's something I really enjoy. In In our interview with Mr. Nisakoff, it's sort of a different perspective because he's an investigative journalist by trade. So he isn't necessarily like a historian or a trained, you know, government Person that you know we've interviewed in the past. So I think it's a great opportunity. I definitely want to keep doing this because I sort of want to frame these stuff through the lens of history. And in terms of history, you know, disinformation warfare and election interference isn't really a new concept. I mean, to be frank, the US did it all the time during the Cold War to sort of try and check the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union even during the Cold War pursued disinformation warfare all the time. So it's not really a new concept. But I think in this world of social media and the internet, I think it's just been supercharged to like a whole nother level. You know, obviously, during the Cold War, you know, you couldn't, you know, hack into televisions and broadcast stuff. There wasn't this sort of globalized way of communication. But now it, you know, you can sort of interact with anyone from anywhere. And the way that you can sort of frame information has changed dramatically. And obviously, you know, reading into all this disinformation, um, Clint Watts, he's a former FBI agent, does a ton of research on this. Hopefully, if you listen to this, I want him to come on. But it's sort of, for me personally, it raises this level of paranoia and makes me really think about the information that I'm seeing, especially on Facebook. I think, I don't know what the percentage, but it was like a sizable percentage of people got their news from Facebook. And it, to me, it's very dangerous, especially when people, and I think today's sort of media world people sort of create these echo chambers and what they want to hear and are very susceptible both on the left and the right. And it's very dangerous. And I think hopefully, you know, just listening to what has sort of transpired will make people maybe just critically think a little bit more about where they're getting in their information, what is credible, who's the author, all that. So, again, I don't want to try and do this from a political perspective. I'd rather do it from a geopolitical perspective because, again, personally, I find this whole story crazy because it goes well beyond the 2016 election. And, you know, again, this goes really to the end of the Cold War to now and this sort of souring of U.S.-Russia relations, which, again, has sort of led to this sort of open attack on American democracy. So again, I personally find it a crazy story. You know, I had the opportunity to do it, so I did it. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. I was going to recommend Mr. Skoff's book, Russian Roulette, is out in paperback. So I would definitely recommend reading any of his work, really. He's written about the Clintons. um, He's written about sort of the um, selling of the Iraq War. So any of his work, you know, he does, I would definitely recommend. So I definitely hope you enjoy that interview. On today's episode, we welcome on Michael Isakoff. He is the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News, where he's also the editor at large for reporting investigations. He digs into national security and money and politics. Previously, he was an investigative correspondent for NBC as well as a staff writer for Newsweek and The Washington Post. He has written three New York Times bestselling books, including Uncovering Clinton with David Korn, Hubris about the selling of the Iraq War, and Russian Roulette, which documents the inside story of Russian interference into the 2016 election. So welcome on. to be with you. And to begin, what is your favorite sort of subject of history or political science to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in Russia and the 2016 election?
1: Huh. Well, a lot there to unpack. First of all, you know, I'm a lifelong reporter and I gravitate towards big stories that influence national politics and the country writ large. I love scoops. I love investigating matters. I have a long I'm love of history. I was a history major in college, as I gather you are. So all of that kind of came together with the Russia story in 2016. It was a uh, investigative challenge to try to figure out what was going on, what the Russians were up to, what Trump was up to, what people in his campaign were up to, and uh, little did I dream at the time just how many, how much legs the story would have and that we'd still be talking about it uh, four years later.
0: And to follow up, was it challenging to write about a book or a subject, given there were so many moving parts and there's so many different characters that kind of cover over such an extensive period of time.
1: Yeah, extremely challenging. But I started out just reporting on Trump during the 2016 presidential race. I do with a lot of reporters do in every campaign. You look into the background of the candidates. You look at what their potential vulnerabilities are. You look at uh, what their record has been. And of course, with Trump, he didn't have a record in as a government official. He'd never been in politics. politics. He'd never been in government, but he did have a record as a uh, real estate developer and as a businessman. So it didn't take too long to see that his efforts to do business in Russia were of interest, but they became a lot more of interest when one looked at the things he was saying about Vladimir Putin and Russia, where contrary to what every other Republican would be saying, Republicans being traditionally hawks on Russia, Republicans having criticized Obama for his reset with Russia, that Trump was an outlier. Trump was saying very different things. He was saying all these positive things about Vladimir Putin despite Putin's aggression in Georgia despite Putin's aggression in Ukraine despite his uh, the uh, murder of Russian journalists and dissidents so it was an investigative challenge. What's going on here? Why is Trump saying all these friendly things about Vladimir Putin? And then you put on top of it and you look and you see all these characters who were gravitating to his campaign, who had their own connections and ties and links to various figures uh, close to the Kremlin or in the Kremlin. And it leapt out in the march, I believe Paul Manafort joins the campaign. Manafort had been the political consultant for years for the pro-Russia political party in Ukraine, headed by a former president who fled to Russia, was living in Russia. You had Michael Flynn at the uh, National Convention talking about lock her up you know, in his speech referring to Hillary Clinton, who had been flown to Moscow in December 2015 and was paid to do so to speak at the 10th anniversary of RT, the Russian propaganda station, and ends up at a gala dinner sitting next to Vladimir Putin. So you see all this, and it was natural that you know, as an investigative reporter, I would want to start digging in to figure out what's going on.
0: And to kind of get into some of those early ties, can you kind of explain some of the early contacts that Trump had with Russia even before he was politically active?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, Russian Roulette, the book you referenced, which, by the way, recently came out in paperback, expanded edition with a new epilogue, starts out really with Trump's trip to Moscow in November 2013, uh, when he's presiding over the Miss Universe pageant. Now, this got a lot of attention. It's Miss Universe, gorgeous women, it's Trump, it's the kind of thing that always gets attention, especially in the tabloid press. But as we discovered that, you know, Trump had another agenda during that visit, and that was to secure a business deal to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, something he had wanted to do for years. And he had a partner in that endeavor, an oligarch by the name of Aris Agalarov, who comes back in this story quite a bit. And Agalarov was, uh, like a lot of oligarchs who are successful, had the favor of Vladimir Putin. He had been given a medal by Putin just a few months before Trump's visit. And he was Trump's partner in Miss Universe, but he was also the partner in the proposed Trump Tower Moscow deal. And, you know, what we discovered my co-author David Korn and I in writing the book is this was a deal that was much more advanced than anybody knew at the time. There had been a letter of intent signed. There had been even trips by Ivanka Trump to Moscow to scout potential sites for this deal. And just getting back to the Miss Universe visit in November 2013, what's Trump trying to do during that visit? He's trying to residing over Miss Universe. He's trying to secure this business deal for Trump Tower Moscow with Aris Aguilarov. And he's trying to meet with Putin. He desperately wants to meet with Putin. He figures that if he can meet with Putin, he can get Putin's blessing for this business deal. And the way Trump thinks, you know, if you get the blessing of the top guy, especially in authoritarian government like Russia has, you're home free it'll go through. And unfortunately for Trump, he never gets to meet Putin. Putin has to cancel a visit because his schedule gets backed up. But it doesn't stop Trump's bromance with Putin. He continues to flatter Putin, figuring the more nice things he says about Putin, better his chances of getting this business deal approved.
0: And in addition, can you kind of explain what Compromont is and the role that it plays domestically in Russia?
1: Sure. Uh, Listen, uh, Compromat is Russian for compromising material, and it's something that the Russian intelligence services historically have been very good at going back to KGB days, but even post-Soviet Union, post-Cold War, the FSB, one of the successor agencies of the KGB, was well-practiced at using Compromat. We talk about an incident early in Putin's career when he was the head of the FSB under Boris Yeltsin, and there was a prosecutor who was investigating corruption in Yeltsin's government and was even focusing on Yeltsin's daughter and investigating Yelton's daughter. And what happens? The FSB under uh, Putin releases a videotape of the prosecutor consorting with prostitutes. And that is used to force the resignation of the prosecutor. So it's a classic instance of the Russian intelligence services, and in this case, Vladimir Putin himself, using compromise to undermine an adversary.
0: And to kind of get into U.S.-Russia relations, which is an important part of the book, at the start of the Obama administration, there was this idea to reset U.S.-Russia relations after it had soured under the Bush administration. Can you kind of explain what that was and why this effort failed?
1: Yeah. Look, it was, you know, every new administration, new president coming in wants to reverse course or change course from his predecessors. And Russia was an example of it. U.S.-Russia relations had deteriorated under Bush after Putin sent military troops into Georgia and had become increasingly hostile to the West and was increasingly viewed as a U.S. adversary. Obama's people thought, let's see if we can engage with the Russians. Let's see if we can carve out areas where we can work with them. And they thought they had a potential partner there because at this point, when Obama comes in, Putin had stepped back as president. He becomes prime minister, which is a secondary role in the Russian government, the uh, president was Medvedev. And Medvedev seemed like a more amenable figure For American diplomacy, he was uh, college. He was well spoken. He didn't have Putin's rough edges. He didn't have Putin's background as having been a KGB officer, and he seemed to be saying things that were promising in terms of building better relations with the Russians. What the Obama people overlooked is that Putin was still pulling the strings. And Medvedia, while he looked like a better partner, was in many ways uh, just a a stalking horse for Putin, you know, a puppet in some ways. And that became clearer as time went on.
0: And it appeared that Putin developed a personal vendetta against Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State, even before she ran for president in 2016. How and why did this happen?
1: Well, interesting, yes. The relationship with Hillary Clinton between Putin and Clinton is an interesting one. Clinton, as Obama's first secretary of state, was actually in charge of implementing the reset and met with Lavrov, the foreign minister, met with Putin. But when Putin decided the gig was up with Medvedev and he was going to come back, Medvedev was going to step down as president and Putin return as president. There would be elections. There were these fraudulent elections, as come to see in Russia under Putin, in which was very much rigged, in which there was, you know, all sorts of accounts of fraud. And Hillary Clinton did what American secretaries of state often do when we see fraudulent elections going around in the world. She criticized them. She publicly called out the Russians for the conduct of the elections. And Putin saw that as a personal attack on him. And that's when the grudge between Putin and Clinton really began.
0: And to switch gears a little bit, can you explain what the illegals program was and how U.S. officials reacted to such an extreme covert intelligence operation by Russia?
1: Sure. You know, a lot of people thought with the uh, end of the Cold War, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, that the uh, threat from Russian intelligence would just go away. We were no longer locked in the ideological struggle of the Cold War. But the Russians didn't see it that way. And their intelligence service launched this operation years earlier in the 1990s to dispatch what was known as the illegals, which was a uh, sort of crew of highly trained intelligence agents, who were planted in the United States to live as normal Americans, raise families, uh, own houses in the suburbs, take jobs, when their real role was to collect intelligence for the Russians. And people may have heard about this if they watched the American TV series, The Americans, which was based on the illegals. And this went on for years. The Russians were collecting intelligence through these undercover operatives planted in the United States. The FBI gets onto it, conducts a years-long investigation that comes to fruition during the Obama reset. And it becomes clear that at the highest levels of the National Security Council, they're not excited about this. The FBI was actually about to, once they got on to the operation, was about to roll it up precisely when Medvedev was flying to the United States for a summit with Obama and uh, Tom Donnell and then then, the... national security advisor was not at all excited about this. Uh, You know, didn't want the FBI mucking around with arresting Russian spies when they're getting ready to host the Russian president. There's a bit of tension on that. They work something out and they'll wait until Medvedev leaves the country before they arrest the Russian spies. But, you know, for many people at the CIA and the FBI, The Obama White House's queasiness about going after the illegals because it it seemed to interfere with what they hoped, what they saw as their foreign policy reset with Russia was a sign of how the Obama people just were not taking the Russian threat as seriously as they should.
0: And to follow up, why was the Obama administration hesitant to sort of respond to Russia despite years of hacking, aggressive actions against American officials at, you know, U.S. embassies and consulates in Russia, and then finally the hacking of the Democratic National Committee in 2016?
1: Well, now you're into the Russian offensive of 2016, which was real, which was extensive, which went beyond anything we had seen before. and. It's June of 2016. It's first reported that the Russians had hacked into the computers of the DNC. And that seemed disturbing enough on its face. On the other hand, it was not unprecedented. The Chinese intelligence. People's Liberation Army hackers had hacked into the computers of both the Obama and the McCain campaigns in 2008. And that was kept secret throughout the campaign. It didn't become public. Well, the existence of the hack became of a hack by a foreign adversary became public immediately after the election. It wasn't until a few years later when I broke the story, when I was then with NBC News, that this was, in fact, Chinese. That the world learned that it was the Chinese that had done the hacking. But there was a critical difference. What the Chinese did was classic intelligence gathering, espionage. They wanted insights into who might be in charge of U.S. China relations if Obama or McCain became president, what their attitudes were, what their thinking was, what memos they were writing, that sort of thing. They wanted to figure out, they wanted to gather information. But within a month or so, shortly, a little more than a month after the public learned that the Russians had hacked the DNC, you had the WikiLeaks dump on the eve of the Democratic Convention, in which WikiLeaks is publicly dumping all these emails that had been stolen by Russian intelligence and clearly had been given by the Russians to WikiLeaks. That was a proactive influence operation. That was to influence the election. And that's what made it different from what the Chinese had done in 2008. The Russians just weren't just gathering intelligence. They were trying to manipulate American public opinion. And then, you know, as time went on, we learned about much more of what the Russians were doing on this front. They were probing state election systems. They had hacked into the John Podesta emails, Podesta being the campaign chairman for the Clinton campaign. So it became increasingly clear that the Rus- what the Russians were up to was something much more extensive than we had ever seen before. But for the Obama folks, look, it's in the final months of an election campaign, everybody assumed Hillary Clinton was going to win. So there was kind of a view that, well, let's let Hillary Clinton deal with this. Obama was fearful that if he called out the Russians in real time or responded in real time to what the Russians were doing, it could A, help feed a Trumpian narrative that the election was being fixed in some way. And number two, there was a a congenital reluctance on the part of Obama to have confrontations with another country in the final months of his presidency. Um, Remember, Obama had shrunk from responding to the Syrian chemical weapons attack. He was somebody who was trying to reduce tensions around the world. And rather than respond in real time to the Russian provocations of 2016, he figured, let's kick the can down the road and let Hillary Clinton deal with it.
0: And to kind of circle back around to the 2016 election, when did Russia sort of initiate this plan to interfere in the U.S. election? Was it a spur-of-the-moment decision or was this a long-term, long-planned operation?
1: One of the things we do in a Russian roulette is look at the history of what's known as active measures that was the term that was originally used by the KGB to describe their influence operations around the world in which they would plant phony stories in the third world countries and hope to get them into the mainstream media in Europe and the United States and they did this over the years playing up the you know claims about the CIA His role in the Kennedy assassination playing up the idea that the Pentagon had created the AIDS virus and unleashed it on the world. There were all sorts of phony stories under the rubric of active measures that KTV had done during the Cold War. The FSB and its partner intelligence agencies, the SVR and the GRU, GRU being military intelligence, SVR being the Russian version of the CIA, Continued with that practice, and we saw when the Russians annexed Crimea in uh, 2014 and sent the uh, armies of little green men into Ukraine, really aggressive influence operations by the Russians to manipulate world opinion by planting phony stories about the Ukraine, about Ukrainians, and uh, you know their adversaries. So we talk about how in 2014 there was a secret source that the United States government had inside the Kremlin who was giving warnings about extensive information warfare campaigns that were being planned against the West, against Western Europe and the United States. And it would include active measures, it would include cyber attacks, it would include lots of operations designed to destabilize and undermine the western democracies so this didn't get hatched out of overnight in the kremlin this became information warfare became a central part of russian military and national security strategy so in some ways what they did in, in the 2016 election was simply an extension of something that they had been planning for some time.
0: And when did U.S. officials sort of begin to both suspect interference from the Russians and about the communication between Trump campaign officials and the Russian government?
1: Well, you know, as I mentioned, it was in June of 2016 when it became public front page story in the Washington Post that the Russians had hacked the computers of the DNC. The FBI was onto this for some time. In fact, we talk about how the FBI had been trying to warn the DNC for well into, you know, starting in 2015 with what they saw as intrusions by the Russians into their computers. Now, The DNC folks who were contacted didn't really take this seriously because the FBI, as it tends to do, was not very explicit about what they knew. They were very guarded. They were just trying to suggest that there were these intrusions. But as those intrusions became more and more brazen. The FBI stepped up its warnings to the DNC. The DNC brought in this cybersecurity firm. Crowdstrike CrowdStrike made the connection between the intrusions that the DNC was seeing and Russian intelligence. And by then, it was pretty clear. By the summer, it was pretty clear that the Russians were doing this. And as I mentioned before, it wasn't just that. They had also begun probing state election databases. And that really spooked people in the White House. The idea that the Russians might get into voter registration databases and might start manipulating voter ID, social security numbers. wouldn't take much. You just flip a digit or two and somebody shows up at the polls and they can't vote, right? So that was something that became quite alarming to folks in the White House in the summer of 2016.
0: And to follow up, one of these officials was Paul Manafort, who you mentioned earlier. Who was he?
1: Paul Manafort wasn't an official. Paul Manafort was a consultant to the uh, pro-Russia political party in Ukraine. And then he becomes a consultant to the Trump campaign and then the campaign manager.
0: And how did he sort of become involved in this Trump campaign? And what sort of role did he sort of play in all of this?
1: Well, remember that you know, the Trump campaign was, did not have the top tier of Republican Party professionals working for it. Most of them, almost all of them, had signed up with other candidates Trump was seen wasn't taken seriously at first. So the most experienced Republican operatives uh, were not available to the Trump campaign. But Paul Manafort did have a history. He had been a uh, consultant for back in the 1990s. He had worked for the Dole campaign. He had worked for the Reagan campaign. He was sort of a seasoned operative who'd been out of it for quite some time because he'd been making all this money in Ukraine. But Trump brings him in, figuring here's a steady hand, here's somebody who knows how Republican campaigns should be run. How a Republican convention should be run. And it is, we don't know exactly for sure how, who made the connection, but Paul Manafort, of course, was a longtime business partner of Roger Stone, the longtime political advisor to Donald Trump. Now, Stone either resigned or got fired from the Trump campaign early on in 2015, shortly after Trump announces, but we now know that Trump was in maintained regular contact with Stone. So it is uh, very possible that uh, Stone uh, planted the idea with Trump that Manafort was the guy who could run the show.
0: And were there other officials within the Trump campaign that had suspicious ties to Russia?
1: Yeah. And as I pointed out, Manafort had been working for years for the pro-Russian political party in Ukraine. He also, and this is important because this is one of the first stories I did that kind of got me on to the Russia connection was being pursued for litigation by a guy by the name of Oleg Deripaska who was a billionaire, aluminum magnate, very high-powered Russian oligarch, very close to Putin, uh, Deripaska was convinced that Manafort had ripped him off to the tune of some $20 million in a cable deal in Ukraine and was suing him in the Cayman Islands for the return of his money. And they actually even served Manafort with a subpoena in the United States for uh, you know to test And that struck me as a highly unusual situation to have a campaign manager for a major party presidential campaign who's in debt to and being pursued in the courts by a powerful Russian oligarch. That on its face seemed like a compromising position. But it didn't stop there. I mentioned before Michael Flynn, who was essentially the new national security advisor to the Trump campaign, who'd been, been paid by the Russians to fly to Moscow in December 2015 to speak at that RT event. Uh, and then uh, Trump had formed this foreign policy advisory board. And one of the characters who he named was this fellow Carter Page. and been trying to do business, had done business in Russia for years, had flown to Moscow in July of 2016 after being named to the foreign policy board of the Trump campaign, and gives this speech in Moscow in which he criticizes uh, American foreign policy for sanctioning Russia over its intervention in Ukraine. So here was a guy who was formulating very pro-Russia positions, serving as an advisor to the Trump campaign, doing business in Russia. So you put it all together and there seemed to be quite a few red flags there hinting at connections and links that the public didn't fully know about.
0: And to sort of switch gears a little bit, do you think that partisan politics in Washington sort of got in the way of a broader, more coordinated response against this election interference campaign by Russia?
1: Uh, Certainly it did. And we know that one of the reasons that the Obama White House did not want to be
0: too out there
1: denouncing the Russian interference is because it had no buy-in from Republicans. Mitch McConnell The Republican leader in the Senate, when he was approached and asked to sign a letter criticizing Russian interference, saw it as a political deal cooked up by the Obama White House to aid the Clinton campaign, because the Clinton campaign had been very public about accusing the Russians of trying to elect Donald Trump and defeat Hillary Clinton. And so, looking At this, through McConnell's partisan lens, he didn't want to be a party to it. And when he wouldn't be a party to it, that became an excuse for the Obama folks to say, well, hell, we can't do this on our own if we have no Republican buy-in. Now, of course, at the same time, the Democrats have their own intelligence operation going on the hiring of Christopher Steele, the former British spy, to develop his dossier on Trump-Russia ties, and then trying to get the FBI to launch an investigation based on that. And, you know, there was a lot that we didn't know at the time about the role that the Clinton campaign and Democratic operatives were playing in trying to push the Russia collusion narrative and story.
0: And to follow up on Christopher Steele, can you kind of explain what that dossier was, how you be- became involved in reporting on it, and you know what impact you think it had in the aftermath of the election? Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I um, first met Christopher Steele in September of 2016. He was meeting with reporters on background to brief us on various allegations uh, that he had come up with through his network of Russian sources. And I was uh, one of the reporters briefed by Christopher Steele, particularly about claims he was making about Carter Page's trip to Moscow and... uh, Steele was claiming he had information about Page meeting with another a powerful Russian oligarch, Igor Sechin, who was the head of Rosneft, the Russian national natural gas energy giant, another guy very close to Putin who'd been sanctioned by the United States. And I had no way to verify what Steele was saying. He was very opaque about who his sources were. But I did learn in the course of my reporting that the FBI was taking this seriously. Seriously, and was investigating these allegations made by Christopher Steele. And that was significant. The story I did in September of 2016 was the first to report that there was an actual intelligence investigation into the links between the Kremlin and somebody in the Trump campaign orbit. Now, of course, we've since learned, and I've learned a lot more about those allegations. They were investigated by Robert Mueller in the course of his uh, nearly two-year probe. Much of what Steele had to say has never checked out. And you know it now appears that much of that dossier was, I think, as the New York Times reported this morning, deeply flawed.
0: And maybe just overall, we obviously know Trump won. But what impact do you think that, you know, Russian interference and disinformation had on the election?
1: It's very hard to say, Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that would like to make the case that it had a decisive impact, that it was able to swing votes Trump's way particularly in light of something we didn't know in 2016, but learned subsequently. And that was the whole other component to the Russian operation. That was the social media operation, the phony bots and Facebook pages that were set up by something called the Internet Research Agency, the troll farm in St. Petersburg. But there's no way to prove That it made a significant impact in vote counts. Uh, You know, that's just something that's ultimately unknowable. It was a close election, so presumably you can make the case that any little bit might have made a difference. But I think where it really made a difference is in everything that took place afterwards. Look at how much time and energy and political food fights we've had ever since about the Russians. And so if the real Russian goal was not necessarily to elect Donald Trump, but to destabilize and sow discord in the American body politic, this was one of the most successful intelligence operations of all time.
0: And do you think that the fact that Trump ended up winning the election made, you know, Russian information disinformation, you know, that much bigger of a story? Do you think if Clinton had won that it would have gone away?
1: I certainly would not have resulted in the same kind of criminal investigations we've had for many years ever since. But the fact of what the Russians did was a important event that had to be investigated, that had to be fully called out. And it is much more likely that if Hillary Clinton had been named, had won the election, that the Clinton administration would have been much more aggressive than the Trump administration has been in confronting the Russians over their conduct.
0: And do you think that disinformation and election interference is still an issue that people are overlooking, both within the US government and in US politics?
1: Yeah, you just had the um, report today about Democrats are concerned that what the briefing they got from the US intelligence. Community about foreign interference in this year's election was not as robust as it should have been, was not as specific as it should have been, particularly about what the Russians and also the Chinese might be up to. We'll have to see. I mean, I certainly think, I mean, it's clear that U.S. officials are expecting some level of interference by our foreign adversaries. It's likely to take new forms and come in new ways. Deep fake videos is one. Look at what we learned last week about the hacking of uh, Twitter accounts of prominent people like Obama and Biden, in which phony tweets were put under their names in their verified Twitter accounts. Imagine if that is done in the closing days of the 2020 election in which you see Biden for instance tweeting something completely preposterous or something that would be totally embarrassing to his campaign imagine a deep fake video created by artificial intelligence in which a candidate is saying things that is would be clearly politically damaging to that candidates campaign all these are the kinds of things that we really need to be looking for and it may not be until the closing days or even hours of the election that we see some of these operations unfold
0: and do you think it's pretty interesting that even after russian interference that concluded that it still seemingly has occupied the vast majority of the Trump presidency?
1: Like I say, I never would have expected that four years after I first began reporting about what the Russians were doing in 2016, we'd still be talking about it in 2020. But, you know, a lot of that has been fueled by Trump's conduct as president the uh, notorious Helsinki meeting in which he seems to accept Putin's denials that the Russians had interfered in the 2016 election, you know, basically siding with Putin over the unanimous findings of the U.S. intelligence and law enforcement community. That was an extraordinary event. And it raised questions in so many people's minds. Why does Trump keep clinging to this idea that the Russians didn't do what everybody knows they did. And why does he keep wanting to placate Vladimir Putin? And of course, most recently, we have seen that in the whole Russian bounty story, where we know that the US intelligence community had intelligence about the Russians uh, paying bounties to Taliban fighters to kill Americans. And yet Trump did not respond to that.
0: And my final question is, since, you know, wrote the book, we've had impeachment over Ukraine, there have been troop withdrawals from both Syria and Germany, and obviously the most recent allegations about Russian bounties against US soldiers in Afghanistan, which you mentioned, do you think all of this sort of still shows this sort of nefarious relationship between Trump and Russia?
1: Well, look, the relationship is, at a minimum, highly curious. And it remains inexplicable to so many people that Trump would continue to want to say flattering things about Vladimir Putin, about trying to work with Putin, about not confronting Putin, about some of his aggressive behavior. What is at the root of it? You know, we've had suspicions that he himself was had been compromised by the Russians. You know, I think the best explanation, we don't know that. It was alleged in this, the Steele dossier, but no proof has ever come forward to substantiate that. But the best explanation that one can come up with is it really gets into Trump's own personal psychology. He sees any talk about, what the Russians did as somehow a cloud over his presidency, that it somehow cheapens his victory in 2016, if it is acknowledged that he got help from the Kremlin. And so he has consistently refused to acknowledge that, and I would say it's gotten him into a lot more trouble than he ever bargained for as a result.
0: So I hope you enjoyed that interview, with Mr. Isakoff. I know I did. I always enjoy sort of these conversations and sort of their experiences, you know, investigating and pursuing these stories because, you know, I didn't really follow the 2016 election. I was at boarding school at the time. So personally, I really didn't really follow it, didn't really know what was going on, all of that. So, and <laughs> again, I think we sort of discussed at the end of this, but You know, the end of four years later, and we're still talking about the story in some ways, obviously, recently with the, you know, Russian bounty story. Again, I don't want to get political, but to me, as trying to look rationally, we know the Russians interfered in the election, and then we see all these sort of, sorts of foreign policy moves that Trump makes in Syria, withdrawing troops, in Germany, withdrawing troops, you know, his rhetoric about Vladimir Putin. And I know conservatives often argue about the policy, for example, the, you know, the Trump administration did sell weapons, which was a step beyond what the Obama administration did. But again, I just can't help but be like, sound my skepticism as someone who isn't all that involved in politics, but would be more from the geopolitical standpoint. But I won't go beyond that. Again, I I think, you know, understanding sort of depth of the story is what fascinates me and that there's so many moving parts. And, you know, again, this sort of goes beyond just an isolated event. It's sort of this, it's always been this sort of back and forth, you know, geopolitical wrestle over, you know, what the world should look like. And in many ways, Russia's goal and Vladimir Putin's goal is to undermine the Western liberal order in whatever way that is. And And it's not through rolling tanks through Europe because they know they would lose but it's through this active measures that we talked about it's disinformation it's undermining democracy it's you know all it's covert you know intelligence gathering it's all these sorts of things that you know isn't necessarily new when the weaker power has to pursue asymmetrical ways to winning wars in many ways that's what it is so if there's one takeaway i would we didn't really get into sort of the fake news phenomenon and all that, but I would just encourage anyone who's listening that double check the sources. I would recommend not just clicking on the first thing you see on Facebook because it's so notorious and so open and you can, but again, I think it's important to sort of try and double check sources and make sure you're getting credible information. So, you know, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I'm hoping to sort of do more episodes like this where we can interview people like investigative journalists because I think they do a lot of great work. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.